0: Hi everyone, Uh, we're reading from Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 to 19. Uh, If you're following along in one of the complimentary analog Bibles, uh, that's on page 792. Right. Now when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and proclaim his message in their cities. When John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offence at me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist, yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John came, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah, who is to come. Let anyone with ears listen. But to what? will I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces calling to one another. We played the flute for you, you did not dance. We wailed and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds.
1: You uh, you may have had one of those uh, experiences when you absent-mindedly subjected yourself to pain. Uh, maybe you accidentally rested your hand on a hot plate. You ever done that? Where you sort of, you put it down, oh! or uh, put it over a boiling uh, water, a kettle or something like that. The steam's coming out and you put your hand over and you don't know that it's quite there. And, and you, or you've stuck yourself with a pin. You've been rummaging around in a, in a basket or a handbag or something like this. And um, it's, then, it's when you have that kind of experience of pain that you realise just how quick your reactions are. Uh, pain arrests your attention in a very significant way. You, you are instantaneous and powerful. You pull away from the pain before you've even really registered it as an experience in your brain. You can be tired, you can be distracted, uh, you can be bored, you can be angry at something else. Uh, but at that moment, the pain captures every single bit of your attention and you move like a highly trained athlete. You are just awesome in your response time. Well, physical pain is one thing. Um, It turns out that there's such a thing as mental pain as well. The psychologists call it uh, cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is when, for some reason, you find yourself in possession of two contradictory ideas. Okay, two contradictory ideas, two thoughts or expectations that simply are incompatible with each other. You can't have them both at the same time. And I suspect that we all have these mismatched pairs, uh, but for most of the time, what we do is we, we keep them hidden away from each other, so that they're not brought into contact. Sometimes they're raised and so they actually see each other, these two different ideas. And that's a sharp, short shock to the mind. You experience mental pain. And you react in much the same way as when you experience physical pain. Uh, You either find a way to push them both back down again or you're forced to ditch one or the other. They're the only two options uh, because you just can't cope with them both. And one situation is when uh, when that sort of thing can happen is when we have expectations, when we have hopes, uh, or desires or thoughts about how things should be, and then reality turns out differently. Now, what I tell you that, I think John the Baptist had a little bit of cognitive dissonance going on in regard to Jesus. Uh, he had expected an undisputed, acknowledged spiritual giant. Uh, John the Baptist was absolutely pumped and poured his entire life into this expectation of Jesus. Jesus whose thongs he was not worthy to untie. Jesus, who he said, would baptise with the Holy Spirit and fire. And, and when it says fire, that means the fire of judgment. Uh, John describes him as having a sharp and effective winnowing fork in his hands. Uh, winnowing fork is an agricultural tool that you would use to separate out the wheat in the harvest from the chaff. And you'd, you'd gather the wheat in That ties with the Holy Spirit. And what do you do to the chaff? You burn it with unquenchable fire. It's trash. The Holy Spirit and fire. And that meant real people and real combat. And being the forerunner of the person who was going to do that in the world, even being the rejected and despised forerunner like John was, was a deeply empowering thing. You know how the game is going to go and so you can cope with anything that's thrown at you. Except that it's not quite turning out that way. At least not to John's mind. Jesus is a little bit underwhelming. He's not what John had expected. And John experiences a bout of doubt. He has an episode of cognitive dissonance. And I suspect not least since he's landed in prison. Uh, Prison in the first century is not the sort of cushy experience that you have these days. Apparently, the state spends about $100,000 a year to keep someone in prison. The food and the sort of the the wardens and the the electricity and all the stuff that you spend on keeping prisoners, basically reasonably healthy, health care and so on. It's all provided in prison in the 20th century. That's a good thing. Back in the first century, you were expected to rot and die pretty quickly. And it's only if you, they didn't give any food, it's only if you had friends or family who would come alongside you and provide for you that you even ate at all. John the Baptist is in prison. It's hell on earth being in a first century Roman prison. And Jesus is not doing much about it. He's just letting him rot there. And so he sends some of those who had faithfully stuck with John who were looking after him while he's in prison to put the issue to Jesus directly. The question is in Matthew 11, chapter 3. Sorry, Matthew chapter 11, verse 3. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we wait for someone else? I mean, are you the real deal? Or actually, is that someone else? Now, that's a pretty pointed question to put to Jesus, don't you think? It's quite an interesting thing to say uh, to Jesus Christ. Jesus gives a powerful answer at the end of which he says, blessed is anyone who takes no offence at me. Uh, The word offence, we have it translated in English, is actually much stronger in the original language. Um, In the the Greek, it's literally "scandalon." Blessed is anyone who is not scandalised by me, who's not outraged by me, who's not furious at who I am and what I've come to do. Blessed is anyone who's not caused to stumble and break things. Because the fact is that Jesus is scandalous. He overturns every expectation. He demands every commitment. Uh, From one angle, as, as we looked at on Thursday night at our outreach event, Jesus is an extremist. And that means that often reactions to him are also extreme. I think we're seeing that in the culture today with a change uh, from a more or less moderate indifference to a deep distaste for Jesus. The response to him now is more antagonism than just apathy. He represents, and certainly his people represent, a destructive, vicious way of life. That's what people say out there. And what we see in this incident are three alternatives, three different postures towards Jesus, seen in uh, John the Baptist, uh, then the crowds, and then uh, finally the response that Jesus wants. So I'm summarising there under faithful doubting, faithless doubting, and then beyond doubt. The kingdom and violence. So firstly then, faithful doubting. Uh, it's often the case that uh, suffering lowers the water level in our lives, I think. Uh, it lowers the water level. It shows what's below the surface in our souls. Uh, this has been a pretty interesting week in the life of St. John's. I, I think maybe once or twice uh, before in the, the 13 uh, and a bit years that I've been here, there have been weeks with this many uh, sort of pastoral crises in the life of the church. But, but this is right up to, I've had as many, if not more, phone calls and emails and texts With people having real pain, really deep struggling pain uh, in their lives and it's those kind of moments that sort of um, you know when things are happy you sort of you bobble along and everything's all right but it's when it's when crisis strikes that the water level goes down, our kind of resources and capacity to just uh, move through fairly comfortably uh, are depleted and we find out what's below the surface of our souls. And I think it's something like that for for John the baptizer. You see, he's in prison. Jesus isn't helping. And he wonders to himself. Perhaps I was wrong all this time. Perhaps I am worthy to untie the laces of his shoes. Perhaps he's nothing special after all. Now, I think suffering almost always uh, leaves you changed. Suffering doesn't doesn't allow you to be unchanged. Sometimes what suffering can do is to cause you to doubt. Uh, Other times what suffering does is drives you straight to Jesus in a very straightforward manner. You cling on more closely because, you know, there's nothing else for you. But John doubts. He wonders. Is it right that I've sunk my life into this person? Does that make sense at this point in time? But what's so interesting is that more than just doubting, he does something with his doubts. He sends word to Jesus. Jesus uh, responds with, I think, a really beautiful grace and kindness to this doubting disciple. Uh, he doesn't rebuke these messengers from John. He doesn't say, get out of here. How dare you say that? No, None of that. Uh, Jesus doesn't tell them to deliver a blistering message to John. You just stay in your place. Jesus answers calmly, if a little cryptically. He points to what he's been doing. uh, And he says, in effect, do the math. Follow the clues. Understand the signs of the times. And those uh, first few verses of Matthew chapter 11... Uh, Jesus is uh, actually quoting one of the great, great kingdom passages in the Old Testament. Uh, y- you know, there, there's lots of Old Testament stuff. You read it. I've been um, uh, reading Leviticus recently, and it's it's it, it's a it's a it's a struggle at times, you know, to be honest. That I'm interested in the plates that all the tribes brought in for the offerings in the, but I'm not that interested actually, and I I struggle to know what to do with it. Not Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35 is one of the towering great chapters. It's the kind of chapter that once you've read it, you don't forget it and it becomes a place you go to again and again and again. Um, It promises the glorious presence of God to people who are and this is how Isaiah describes it, of fearful heart. Of fearful heart. And the promise is this in verse 4 here is your God. He's coming. He's with you. Here is your God. He will come with vengeance and with terrible recompense. This is the people who are being oppressed and stuffed down. And Isaiah prom- promises and prophesies that God will turn up. He'll show up and bring vengeance with terrible recompense against his enemies. And Isaiah sums it up and says, When judgment on them comes like this, that means that he will come and save you. And when that happens, Isaiah says, the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Which is exactly what Jesus says is happening in him right here and now. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying that the the presence of God is here. He is the presence of God. Come in vengeance and with terrible recompense to save you. Even, John, if it's not taking the form that you expected. We'll come back to that in a little while. But Jesus says, don't confuse the form for the fact. And seemingly, they're satisfied, these disciples. And they they take their leave. They go back to John. Now, what I want you to notice here in particular um, is that faith and doubt are not, in fact, incompatible with each other. It is quite possible to doubt within faith, to have unanswered questions, to to have even mental pain. In fact, I might go so far uh, even as to say that if you don't at times have unanswered questions and mental pain if there's never any doubt for you at all then it might be that you lack humility you think you've got everything worked out or it might be that you haven't actually kind of really embraced the realities of this world you've kept it all pretty neat and tidy but there's a lot that would cause us to ask this question of John don't you think are you the one who is to come Or should we expect another? And Jesus doesn't turn away this kind of faithful doubting. Because you see, what constitutes faithful doubting, the key is what you do with your doubt. Faithful doubting goes to Jesus. He can handle your doubts. He can cope with your tantrums. Faithful doubting pursues answers and hunts down the truth. Well, that's very different to the doubter who loves to doubt. Uh, it's very interesting. Uh, there is a kind of doubter who actually has an immense confidence. It's a confidence in how clever they are in their doubting. And you might have met people like this. You see, that's exactly what we see as Jesus interacts with the crowd. Point two faithless doubting. Pick it up at verse seven. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness just to, to look at—a reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who wear soft robes are in royal palaces. After John's disciples leave, he asks them what uh, he, he to, uh, to another set of disappointed expectations. Uh, this time, it's the crowd, and he asks them what were they hoping to see when they went out to see John. Uh, but to get the point of Jesus' rhetorical questions, uh, which all assume the answer, no, we need a bit of background. So um, imagine if you'd never uh, seen any kind of mass media or publication before at all. No, uh, no radio, no TV, no newspapers. You've never seen a book. You've never seen a picture. You've never seen a painting, not a photograph, uh, not a film, nothing. You've never seen any kind of form of mass media at all. How, as a ruler, are you going to communicate? Are you going to let people know who rules things around here? Well, what's something that everyone has? And the answer is what's something that everyone has is coins. And so the only form of mass media in the ancient world was coinage. And in the first century, uh, it was on their currency that those in authority said what needed to be said about the way things were and we have many coins from the ancient world with the picture of the ruler on the coin because the coin is money and the ruler is on the coin and that says I run things around here and in fact if you take out a coin that you've got right now guess who you'll see on the coin that'll be Lizzie right there she's the queen right she runs the joint Interestingly, in deference to the Jewish scruples about putting the image of a person on a coin, uh, the ruler at the time of Jesus, a a man by the name of Herod Antipas, had instead chosen a symbol to put on the coin rather than his own picture. And specifically, it was a symbol of a common Galilean reed, a plant, swaying in the breeze. Uh, There were acres and acres of these reeds Uh, by the Sea of Galilee. And um, it was a symbol that evoked the beauty and the fertility and the plenty of the area. And, And by putting that symbol on the coin, Herod was saying, if what you want is prosperity, if what you want is this kind of fertility and safety and security, then I'm your man. I'm your man. So, when Jesus says... Uh, to the crowd what did you go go out into the wilderness to look at a reed shaken by the wind what he's saying is were you after just another standard typical mass-produced Herod-style king a ruler another politician someone who's going to promise a lot and deliver very little is what you were after some sort of aristocrat wearing soft robes dressed in finery. Surely you wanted more than just another one in that production line. Surely what you wanted was a prophet. And and the answer is yes, yes, that's true. But they got more than what they bargained for, verse 9. What then did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Because this is one about whom it is written... See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Yes, John was a prophet, but in fact, he was the greatest of all the prophets. In fact, greater than all the people who had lived prior to Christ. Indeed, John was more than a prophet in the sense that he actually played a vital role in events. He doesn't just speak about those events. Uh, a little later on Jesus makes it clear that he's the Elijah figure promised by the prophet Malachi in the Old Testament. The Elijah figure who will prepare the way, he'll actually uh, make ready the path, he'll lay out the red carpet And of course, what's really interesting here is that although Jesus is referring to John the Baptist, the person he's really speaking about is himself. Because in Malachi's prophecy, it's perfectly clear for whom the Elijah figure was preparing the way. who's, Who's he preparing the way for? He's preparing the way for the Lord. The Lord. And Malachi says that the Lord will suddenly come to his temple. It's exactly the same promise. It's always this promise, actually in the old testament that the great hope of the people of god is that god himself will come personally to them that's what Isaiah said and so here jesus is inviting people to put two and two together john the baptist is the greatest of all the prophets he's the one who prepares the way whose way does he prepare he prepares jesus as uh, the lord's way but who does john say he's preparing for he points to jesus which makes Jesus the Lord. That's what Jesus is saying here. Which is why even the least in the kingdom of heaven, any one of us here tonight, actually, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist, the greatest of all Old Covenant people. Um, it's for the same reason that the least member of the royal household, say, Meghan, right? Just a a, a blow-in American, for crying out loud. Meghan. The least member of the royal household is greater than the most impressive, decorated, long-standing public servant. It's all about who you're connected to and how you're connected. And Jesus is the Lord come to be with his people. Except that created mental pain for what Jesus calls this generation. They, like John, expected one thing, but Jesus was another thing. But unlike John, instead of pursuing the truth, they simply sit on the sidelines listening to their iPhones. Verse 16 But to what will I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to one another, we played the flute for you uh, and you did not dance. We wailed and you did not mourn. Jesus speaks of this generation, not generals, this generation. Uh, And he says, they're like a bunch of small kids uh, playing games in the marketplace. Okay, They're a bunch of Kids playing dress-ups, all right? That's the game that they're playing. Their pretend game includes, uh, as it often does, uh, significant things like a wedding and a funeral. And at a wedding, music would be played and dancing enjoyed. That's what happens at weddings. At a funeral, the professional mourners would be brought in who would wail in a way not dissimilar to what we sometimes see today in a Middle Eastern funeral setting. And the the little riddle that Jesus tells is that in neither case, either when they're supposed to be playing the the wedding in their game or when they're supposed to play the funeral dress-up in their game, the kids sitting on the sidelines won't get involved. They won't play the game. They simply call out to one another, refusing to get up and play. And then Jesus explains this riddle in verse 18. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came, eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Jesus takes this game, the two little sub-games that they're meant to be playing, right? Funeral and wedding. Jesus takes these two little games in inverse order. Uh, the last group of sideline sitting children were those not playing the mourning game. In In a sense, that's John. That's the game that he came to play. He came mourning, calling for repentance, seeking to turn the hearts of the children to their father. He came eating no bread and drinking no wine. His was a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But this generation wouldn't play the game, Jesus is saying. They wouldn't recognise the rightness of his tune. They wouldn't own their own sins. They wouldn't take responsibility for themselves and then realise that they couldn't handle that responsibility and they needed forgiveness from God. Then on the flip side, the, the wedding game, Jesus came celebrating. This is the Lord himself bringing the day of jubilee, setting the captives free announcing and enacting the year of the Lord's favour, doling out grace to people, bringing healing and fruitfulness into their lives, pouring out mercy to sinners like you and me in outrageous proportions. And what does this generation do, Jesus says? Well, again, they just sit on the sidelines. They won't see what's there to be seen. They simply accuse Jesus of being a party animal a drunkard and a glutton, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And they're scandalised by Jesus. Jesus concludes by saying that wisdom is vindicated by all her deeds. That is, there is a way of wisdom that shows, uh, that's shown to be right by both John the Baptist and by Jesus, by John the Baptist who knew to mourn when mourning was right. And by Jesus who knew to dance and celebrate when dancing was right. And also by us children who know to get up off the sidelines and get involved and move with what God is doing in his world. That's wisdom. Which leads to the final point, Jesus' call to move beyond doubt. You see, right in the middle of this uh, whole section is one of the hardest uh, sayings of Jesus, I think, to understand in the Gospels, which is in verse 12. Did you you puzzle as you uh, read it? Uh, From John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. It's very interesting uh, thing that Jesus says. Uh, it's quite difficult to translate. Jesus deliberately, I think, chooses a word that could be translated in different ways and it doesn't quite work in English. Literally, uh, what Jesus is saying here, the kingdom of God violences. Except that doesn't make sense. And so translators have to pick one way to translate it or the other, which is a shame because I think Jesus is saying two things at the same time. On the one hand, I think what Jesus is saying here is that the kingdom is connected to violence in the sense that it comes violently. Jesus is saying that you will never receive the kingdom of heaven unless you see that it will change everything. That it will bring absolute upheavals into your life. This is what we saw last week. That to be a disciple of Jesus is to take up the cross and follow him. If Jesus is the Lord of history, not not just a teacher with proposals, if he is the Lord of heaven and earth, the one to whom the stars are like pieces of lint, then when he comes into your life, he's going to change everything about it. He, He won't be your personal assistant. He's not going to be some sort of domestic pep that you can just sort of have and put into a portion of your life. The only terms Anyone comes to Jesus are his terms and that means that everything will change. It will do violence to have the kingdom enter your experience. It will do violence to your priorities and your commitments, to your decisions and to your relationships, to your fears and to your loves. The kingdom comes violently. It's the only way it comes. Don't pretend it's anything else. And at the same time, Jesus is also coming uh, saying that the kingdom suffers violence. And I think in this sense, you see, Jesus is not asking us to do anything that He is not going to do himself." Jesus says, "In order for me to come to you, I will have to suffer violence. I've given up the joy and beauty of glory. And the violence of divine justice is going to come down on me. That vengeance and terrible recompense of which Isaiah spoke, well, that will be salvation to you. Just as Isaiah prophesied, precisely because it will be damnation to me. I will suffer the violence of death so that you can suffer the violence of life what's the violence of life well think about it for a moment it's surgery isn't it surgery what you want from the surgeon is to slice you open because that is the life-saving moment in that moment you are totally vulnerable you are totally at the disposal of the surgeon you have given up control of your life entirely And that is the mark of christian faith faith even beyond doubt it engages it connects it pursues knowing that jesus is the answer even if i'm asking the wrong questions even if what it will mean to follow jesus is to take up the cross but but disengagement disconnection a kind of disinterest or or just a half-hearted pursuit of Jesus and the questions that he is answering, well he says it's just like being a spoilt child. You, ever, you might have been one. You ever know a spoilt child? A spoilt child is endlessly changing what they're interested in. That's, that's the way a doubter works, isn't it? Endlessly changing what they're interested in. They want to play this game and then, oh no, they want to play that game and then, no. But whatever happens, a spoilt child stays on the sidelines. That's how it works. Constantly shifting ground, asking for more and more and never being satisfied. And Jesus says, that's this generation. That's his generation. They came with their fixed ideas of what a Messiah should be and do. And they found Jesus wanting in the comparison. And so they became disinclined to dance to his tune. That's the same in this generation, isn't it? They have an agenda for what they want in a saviour, whether whether Jesus or anyone else. They want someone who will fix up all the problems of hatred and injustice and poverty without fixing up the sin in my heart. And Jesus says get off the sidelines don't be like a spoiled child leave the critics chair and rise and dance with him in his way get up and dance to his tune of grace engage make an involved response that joins in his program of eating and drinking in celebration and joy that the kingdom of God has come near. He says, you be my people and you be a pocket of resistance to the ways of this world. In misery and hatred and cynicism, give yourself wholly over to grace. The grace of God in the face of Christ. The grace of God, which means that our sins are forgiven because he has borne the vengeance. The grace of God that means our eternity is secure and we are loved by the God of the universe. The grace of God that means that our souls are full no matter what our circumstances, even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. For you are with me. You're with me. The Lord is here, and grace which enlivens us to be ambitious, really ambitious people, ambitious for ourselves and ambitious for others to live fully human lives in the grace of Jesus Christ, redeemed and restored. And Jesus says, wisdom is vindicated by all of her deeds. There is no circumstance, there is no situation, there's no person who cannot be brought alive by the music of God. He sends us out as we go in mission to speak and enact the kingdom of heaven. We're his sent disciples. And Jesus says, make sure that you are not like those marketplace kids just sitting on the sidelines of God's great grace. Don't do it. Get up and dance with Jesus. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, so full of grace and truth, the Lord with us. Strengthen us, we pray. Strengthen us even in the moments of our doubting as we come to you and almost demand answers from you because we know that you're the only one who really will have answers for us. And take us even beyond that doubt and fill us with your joy that we would dance to your great tune of grace. And we ask it for your glory. Amen.